could he do that? Are you on Donate What? Charles Darwin. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever. Alongside me is Logan Camden, and it has been a long nine days since we did a podcast about the NBA. We've talked about it. We went on Run It Up. We talked about the draft. We did an ISO podcast where we did sort of a mock free agency. But since we talked about it here on Nerd Sesh, a lot has happened. We are talking about the draft. We are talking about a number of significant trades, and now tonight, free agency has started. We are coming to you from about 9 p.m. Eastern, so... As of right now, the only really big free agency signing I would say that has happened is Danilo Gallinari to the Hawks. We've had some extensions. We've had some teams bring guys back, and we've had some role players switch locations. We will get to all of that, but we're going to sort of put it towards the end of the show because right now, again, nothing that major has happened, and we want to give ourselves room in case something does happen in the time that we're recording to talk about it all together in a free agency segment. But as of now, I would say the news of the week remains... The NBA draft. There's been a bunch of it, but the draft happened on Wednesday night, and obviously we had some surprising stuff happen at the top. We've talked about this draft in great detail. So, Logan, with everything that we saw, who do you say comes out of that draft as the biggest winner? Uh, Right now, I've got two really big teams as my winners. The first team is the Philadelphia 76ers with all the moves they made. I think you get off a guy like Al Horford's contract, just open up cap space for this offseason to make big trades, and then surrounding Ben Simmons with shooters in the draft. I think getting Tyrese Maxey with the 21st pick, he's just a good off-the-dribble shooter. We saw him make a lot of big shots at Kentucky uh, just because, I mean, we saw Ben Simmons how his game is played, you need shooters surrounding him. His best years came with Bellinelli, with Ilyasova, with J.J. Redick. So not only Maxi though, they bring in uh, Seth Curry by trading away Josh Richardson. I don't think Josh Richardson is nearly the spot-up shooter that Seth Curry is. I think um, Curry does a lot of what Richardson does, not as much defensively, but offensively. It's a great replacement. And then drafting Isaiah Joe in the second round. I don't know if he'll get rotational minutes in Philadelphia immediately, but he's such a he doesn't care. He'll put up any shot. He's a great three-point shooter. I just Surrounding Ben Simmons with shooter is genius. I'm so glad Daryl Morey realizes that. Um, all the shooters he got in Houston, he just does it here again in Philadelphia. And then I think getting a guy like Paul Reed with the 58th pick is a great pickup as well, just because I was high on him. He's got great defensive instincts, especially that late in the draft to get a, a smart rebounder, a smart post defender. Uh, they're just valuable assets in the NBA. And then I mentioned the Dallas Mavericks as well. I think them getting Josh Richardson is a big move, uh, just because Luka needs that secondary ball handler, another solid guard defender. Uh, Tim Hardaway Jr. is a good offensive player, but I think Josh Richardson brings so much more as a pick-and-roll ball handler and a perimeter defender. And then just what they did in the draft, I'm going to get into this later because they made two humongous second-round picks in picking up Tyrell Terry and Tyler Bay. Uh, They needed another defender, and not just Richardson, but Tyler Bay is... Two perfect picks for Dallas. I can't think of two better players that fit into those systems. Uh, we're gonna, I'm gonna get into more in depth on those two picks. But uh, to me, though, overall, the the two best teams at the end of this draft uh, coming out are the Sixers and the Mavericks. I think that those are two great choices. I had them both down on my short list of three winners of this draft, and I think that. The two second-round picks individually that the Mavs made with Tyrell Terry and Tyler Bate might be my two favorite second-round picks of the entire draft. Josh Green, not my favorite 18th overall. I think that that's a bit of a reach, and although he does ideally fit into their system in that 3-and-D mold, I just have too many questions about the consistency of his shot, about the viability of his creation off the dribble, that I'm not really all-in on him as a prospect. But I want to talk about the Sixers before I get to the one team that I actually chose as my ultimate winner, because... Tyrese Maxey is maybe my favorite pick of the draft at 21. 
And what's hilarious is you talked about his shot making off the dribble. This is a real thing that I read in a CBS Draft Grades article. They refer to him as a non-shooter. That is the definition to me of somebody getting paid to write about the draft and apparently only looking at one number, which is three-point percentage, because he shot... 29% from deep. The dude is so clearly a projectable shooter and he's refined his form and he can be lethal off the dribble at the next level, in my opinion. And what's so great about this fit is the Sixers obviously need pure shooting across the board, but what they don't need is a great facilitator because they have that in Ben Simmons. What they do need though is that real bucket getter, that closer from the perimeter who can play the Jimmy Butler role from a couple years ago, maybe even at a higher level than that. And I honestly think in my heart of hearts that Tyrese Maxey completely has that potential. I have said before, I think he's the best scoring prospect in this draft. He has such a deep bag, a pretty quick first step, but it's the change in pace. It's the unreal floater touch. He's a super creative finisher around the rim and a plus defender. So that is a home run to me. And then Isaiah Joe at 49 fills one need for this team so incredibly well. You say that you don't know if he's going to get rotation minutes. I think he will. And the reason for that is, look at Forkan Korkmaz. He does one thing really well. He's playing 20 minutes, 21 minutes a game for this team because he can shoot the hell out of the ball. And Isaiah Joe is a top three pure shooter in this draft, 38% from deep on nine attempts per game in college. You don't see guys shoot from volume like that in college. You don't see guys predicate their entire games on just their shot making from the perimeter like he did. And... He does have some shot creation potential. He has defensive potential with a 6'10 wingspan. He's a solid lateral mover, has good instincts there. So he could certainly, in my opinion, supplant Furkan in that role long-term because of the defensive value. So I thought that was a home run. And then you talk about Paul Reed, another guy who I certainly did not expect to be there at 58. You're talking about a guy who defensively is going to bring immediate value, 7'2 wingspan, mobile, super active and competitive on that end, great ball instincts. And offensively, he's explosive as a lob threat immediately. And he has potential for a shot. Now, I don't see him getting minutes right away because if the shot isn't there, you're not going to be able to play him alongside, obviously, Joel Embiid, Tobias Harris. But maybe he'll get some second unit tick, although they did just bring in Dwight Howard, which makes that a little bit more stacked in the front court. But long term, I think, you know, many guys in the 50s never make it to the NBA. I would be shocked if Paul Reed doesn't make it to the NBA because I think his floor is already relatively high. But to me, even more than the Sixers, as much as I love their draft, the biggest winner, I would say was the Minnesota Timberwolves because they had not just a position of need, they had a position group of need in all of their wing spots because you're talking about Jarrett Culver and Josh Okogie starting 63 games and the acquisition of Malik Beasley was big. They did extend him on a four-year $60 million deal, which I really like because I think that his scoring punch is undeniable. But down the road, I don't really see him operating with the starters. I think that he's the kind of guy who wants to have the ball in his hands, can be a great sixth man who scores in spurts, and they've invested in him, and I'm all for that. But he doesn't have the same 3 and D potential, in my opinion, as some of the guys that they took here, or really just the varied skill sets, because I think that they knocked all three of these picks out of the park. And maybe the 28th pick of Jaden McDaniels flops, because there are many worlds in which he's not a great player, but I love that they took the chance. So it starts at the top, because Anthony Edwards, to me, may not be the best prospect in this draft, but I think he's probably the second best prospect, and he's the best basketball fit. I've talked about it before, I think there's immediate value off the ball, defensively, I think there's long-term value as the kind of star who can do it potentially with the ball in his hands and without the ball in his hands. I love that, they need a third star, they need a big swing here, they accomplish that, but... What I love even more is what they did in the 20s, 23rd, getting Leandro Bomaro. I cannot think of a better place for one of my absolute favorite prospects in this draft, but you're talking about a big playmaking wing who's defensive-minded. If the shot comes along, Bomaro is going to be a perfect fit here because 
You can look at Culver. Oh, Kolke's already a plus defender, right? Doesn't matter. He hits less than 30% of his threes. Conversation's over. You're not a valuable NBA player if you're doing that. And so, Bomaro, to me, has the tools to be a really high-level defender and offensively can score. He has the change in pace. He has the touch. And it's the passing that I think could be special if operating off the ball as that secondary guy. And then McDaniels, maybe he's the one pick out of this group that they miss on. I'm very confident in Leandro Bomaro and Anthony Edwards... There were questions, obviously, about how much he loves the game because he said, basically, I don't love the game of basketball. And that's fair, and I understand why that raises a concern, but I do think he's projectable into a star mold. He made sense to take first overall. McDaniels is another guy where you look at him and you wonder, okay, does he love the game of basketball? Because he has so many tools. My thing is, if he just commits to playing defense, he's automatically a great pick 28th overall because the shot will be there. That is undeniable. Maybe he didn't shoot an overwhelming percentage from three in college, but you can see that the stroke is there. So then the creation off the dribble just becomes a bonus, but I think he can have real defensive value and should have real defensive value because not everybody comes in, has his kind of lateral mobility and a seven-foot wingspan, his tenacity as a help side rim protector. We saw him average, I think, one and a half blocks a game at Washington. So it's all about motivation with him. And it's kind of all about motivation with this entire crew because I like these guys, but you know, Anthony Edwards didn't play winning basketball at Georgia for the most part. We don't know if he has that drive to win. Landry Bomaro was really only finding success in the B League playing with FC Barcelona because whenever he went up to play with the big boys, he struggled. And then McDaniels got benched at a Washington team. So Maybe I shouldn't say that it's my favorite draft, but I think there's so much talent here. Jaden McDaniels could easily be a top five player in this class. Landry Bomaro could easily be a top five player in this class. So the Sixers, to me, knocked it out of the park as far as getting pretty certain value. Maxi will be really good. Joe will be perfect for what they're trying to do. Paul Reed will be an NBA player. But the T-Wolves, I think, took some big swings on guys that I really like. Anyone else that we didn't talk about who you thought came out of draft night a big winner? Uh, yeah, just one more. I did have the Timberwolves written down as my third team, and uh, I think you make a lot of good points, especially with them bringing in a guy like Ricky Rubio to kind of mentor Leandro Balmaro. Uh, they, they killed the draft. Uh, I'd say the Detroit Pistons are another team that I thought uh, killed it, just because you get a guy like Killian Hayes and uh, his upside, just because the Pistons haven't had anybody to build around for a few years now. Killian Hayes, I, I just think, is somebody that you can build a winning franchise around. That was one of my absolute favorite picks of the draft. The only reason I wouldn't have them there is I wasn't a huge fan of Isaiah Stewart at 16. That was a bit of a reach to me, although I did really like them getting Sadiq Bey at 19. But so talking about Hayes, we had some varied picks in this lottery, some shockers in the top five even. I'm sure a lot of Phoenix Suns fans were shocked with who they took with the 10th pick, some more certain things. Who were your top three favorite picks out of the lottery? Let's go back and forth one at a time here. Uh, so yeah, I just mentioned him. Uh, Killian Hayes is the first guy I want to talk about. Uh, he's, like I said, the Pistons haven't drafted well in a long time. In the past 20 years, I'll give them credit for drafting a guy like Andre Drummond. The only players they've drafted that have contributed to winning basketball are Tayshaun Prince, Chris Middleton, and Spencer Dinwiddie. And they dealt two of those guys away. Uh, to nab a guy like Hayes at seven is not only the smartest move they could have made. It's the biggest steal of the draft, in my opinion. He's got dominant lead scoring ability with his step back. He's got excellent touch when he's driving to the rack with his floaters and runners. He's a tremendous playmaker. He's a smart pick and roll decision maker. He can make any pass on the floor. I just think that with how how down in the dumps the Pistons have been, how negligent they have been to go into a full rebuild, to get a guy like Killian Hayes, you can put a franchise on this kid's shoulders 
I think that the Pistons have a chance to win a title here in a few years if they play their cards right, if they play free agency right, and if they nail their draft picks on the head. Uh, Killian Hayes at 7, I just didn't expect him to be around. I thought he was a top 5 guy. At 7, tremendous value and uh, tremendous upside. And let me just say that for his sake, I want them to bring back Christian Wood. I've been saying that maybe they should let him go. I mean, I think that they're probably going to let him go, but I do think that having a dynamic pick-and-roll buddy for him early in his career would be great. I think if this is a home run, this is absolutely one of my favorite picks of the draft. Uh, without a question, Killian Hayes, to me, is a top-five prospect in this class. You get him at seven, that's a great deal for them. My first choice here, though, is the 13th pick of the draft. Kyra Lewis Jr. to the New Orleans Pelicans, which I loved because... There was a real long-term hole at point guard here for this team with Drew Holiday now out of the picture. I love Lewis to fill that role. He has so many special traits that immediately translate, and obviously the most glaring is that he's the fastest player in the draft, and so his first step is absolutely lethal. In transition, he can be absolutely lethal, and those are two pretty darn good things to be when you're playing alongside Zion Williamson. So I love his ability there. I think that he is at the very least a solid playmaker. Defensively, should be a plus, is a fluid shot maker off the dribble. I just think it's a home run all around. You weren't going to, you know, really like the fit of Bledsoe and Zion there, obviously. Lonzo is not a true point guard in this league at this point. I think that we are aware of that. George Hill, you're not going to want to start over those guys. So Kyra Lewis Jr. brings that value right now. He brings that value long term. And still one of the younger guys in this draft, even having played two years of college, has room to grow. But I think his floor is pretty much a starting point guard. I really like him. And I honestly don't think I talked about him enough in the pre-draft process because I like him that much. So what does the future for Lonzo hold if he's not a starting point guard in your opinion? I think he's a two, essentially. He's a secondary playmaker. He's obviously a plus defender. And if he can shoot threes at the clip that he did this year, then you can play him. And really, his game is going to go with his shooting. If he's a 30% three-point shooter, he won't be playable. If he's a 37% three-point shooter, he can be a positive because of his defense and because of his passing instincts. But he doesn't have the dynamism as a scorer to me to facilitate an offense, which you need. You need to be that threat out of the pick and roll as a scorer. Lonzo Ball is not, and that has always been his shortcoming to me. What was another one of your favorite picks out of the lottery? Uh, the second biggest deal of the lottery, I think, had to be Denny of Deha. T to get such a smart offensive player, I, I think with how Washington plays offense, th their system fits him perfectly. They were 7th in points per game last year and 7th in pace with a league average offensive rating. And, and in my opinion, with a supremely underwhelmingly talent-wise roster, uh, with John Wall and Bradley Beal, I am hoping that there's enough ball for him to go around so he can develop uh, his ball handling skills a little more. Right now, he seems like he's going to be a secondary or tertiary, tertiary ball handler to Wall and Beal. But at least I know in Washington, he'll at least have talent around him, unlike landing spots like Detroit or New York. Uh, Abdiha will find Beal open all over the perimeter with his passing vision. Wall will find Abdiha cutting to the basket for a lot of buckets. And with how fast this offense ran last year, Abdiha will fit right in because he loves running the break in transition. With the ball in his hands, he's got a pretty promising spot up jumper and off the dribble shot. He can get buckets for himself in the paint as well with his bag of crafty Euro moves. What I'm most hopeful for, though, is that with his defensive ability, I hope he can help Washington on that side of the ball. They were dead last in defensive rating. Then he's just a smart positional defender on the ball and off. He's a sneaky good shot blocker. Uh, I said this guy, I said in our draft episode, I think this guy could be the best player in the draft. Now, I don't know how long that takes. I'm still standing by that take. I think Washington gets the potential best player in the draft at nine. Crazy value for Washington to get a player of this caliber. Also with 
what looks like it might be a contending roster in Washington. This is a guy who was ready to play day one. Uh, one of my favorite picks in the draft. I completely agree. This is a huge win getting Denny at nine. I certainly did not expect him to fall here. I think that he, to me, was one of the top six guys in this draft who I felt pretty strongly about, and I would not have taken any of the guys outside of that group over Denny or anyone else who I consider to be in almost a separate tier as far as my top six prospects. But if Denny's shot is improved, and I think that it looks improved, you are talking about huge value. But even if not, he's got space to work with here. He obviously brings such tremendous playmaking from the wings. You talk about the ways that he'll find a score, even if it's not with that dynamic shot making. He'll be an active cutter. And we'll see if he plays defense here in Washington because they tend not to. And we do see young guys really get discouraged from exerting themselves on that end of the ball, even if it was part of their identity. I always think about what Colin Sexton was at Alabama, where his defense was one of the biggest pluses about him as a prospect. And he just has never shown that effort again in his time in Cleveland. But Denny's going to be awesome here, I think. I think that that kind of playmaking, that kind of ability to score without the ball, and again, if the shot comes along, that is just an absolute home run, and a lot of teams are going to regret taking their guys over Denny. I think that's going to be the case no matter what. So my second choice here will be the third pick of the draft because I think when the Charlotte Hornets get LaMelo Ball, that is a huge win for them. You got, in my opinion, the best prospect in the draft with the third pick. That's a huge win no matter what. He does need, in my opinion, better talent around him here, and it's really just at the center spot because I think if you look at how this team plays, they made the fourth most passes in basketball, they move the ball, they have shooters around him. Miles Bridges maybe not an exceptional shooter, but you're talking about P.J. Washington at the four. Bridges has improved there and is at the very least respectable and willing to take the three. So I like all of that. I want them to go out, and this is something that we actually projected in our mock free agency, and get Aaron Baines. And then you're playing with as much space as you can because LaMelo right now, due to his lack of shot, if you don't give him exceptional space, and I'm talking about probably playing five out a decent amount of the time, he's going to struggle and he's going to feel a little bit suffocated and congested. So we'll see what percentage he shoots the ball at from deep this year. That to me is fundamental to how great of an offensive engine he can be. But I like the talent around here. I hope that they invest in at least getting a center who is better than Zeller because I think that LaMelo deserves that. He deserves that dynamic athlete rolling downhill. He deserves that guy who could maybe even space the floor at the five. PJ Washington, I wish could play there, but I don't think that he can defend fives well enough. But to me, again, you get the guy who I think is probably the best prospect in the draft third. We'll see how he develops. We'll see how the talent around him develops. We'll see what they do with Devontae Graham and Terry Rozier because I don't think all three of these guys are sticking around. Those two are assets. Rozier maybe not as much with his contract, but I do think he proved a lot this year and how he played off the ball and how much he improved as a pure catch-and-shoot guy. So we'll see what they do. But it almost doesn't matter because you mold your team around LaMelo. You have talented guys who I like individually. You took your big swing here. I'm a huge fan of that. What was your third favorite pick of the lottery? So I kind of did a 180 because live on the show uh, on Run It Up, I didn't really like Tyrese Halliburton to Sacramento, but I've changed my mind. I, I think there are still some concerns with the pick. I don't really like Tyrese at shooting guard just because of his weight at 175. He's just, I feel like he can get pushed around by these bigger guys. But he's got a 6'8 wingspan. If he can just build a little mass to his frame, I think he's got a lot of defensive upside as a wing. Uh, but for right now, alongside De'Aaron Fox, they kind of need a secondary ball handler. Nobody else really... Uh, takes the rock out of his hands on offense. And in the modern NBA, we've seen the value of having two guys who can handle the rock, uh, like in Portland with C.J. McCollum and with Damian Lillard. Uh, for Halliburton, again, I am concerned with his shot as well. It's not the cleanest shot. It's It's got a little bit of a hitch in it as he releases, so I question his value as a spot-up shooter. But 
He's a smart player. He knows how to run the pick and roll. He's got a he's got a great handle, and uh, he does have a little bit of range. While he's got that hitch in his shot, he can hit those deep shots. So I think if the Kings choose on to choose to move on from uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich and Buddy Heald, you'll at least have a competent shooter out there on the floor with the Aaron Fox, um, and he just provides upside. Like I said, if he builds onto that frame. Uh, he's a bit of a do-it-all guy on the floor, uh, rebounding, assisting, scoring. Uh, he's got some things to work on, but I think overall, a two-guard system where De'Aaron Fox does not have to tire himself out all the time out there on the floor just works in Sacramento, and he's just a better prospect than some of the other guys the Kings have drafted. Marvin Bagley, um, just a depressed Kings fan. I wish they had taken Luka Doncic and could have come up with somebody else. But Halliburton will be a, a solid enough two-guard or one-guard wherever the Kings decide to play him. And if that shot comes along, this is a steal at 12. Yeah, I think that that's the key point there. It's about the value. Getting Halliburton at 12, even though both of us raised our questions, I certainly have my questions about him as primarily an off-ball guy. It's good value. I will point out just one thing that confused me. I know that you shouted out his 6'8 wingspan there. That is what the NBA draft official profile says. They say he's a 6'8 wingspan. I've always thought he had a 7-foot wingspan, which is what I've seen listed, which I feel like is probably more accurate. Maybe he has the skinny arms advantage there, but it looks like he has long arms. That's not really that significant, but I just think, you know, he does have real length on that end, and he does get in the passing lanes, and that's part of what makes him a plus defender. So it's interesting. I understood your initial reaction. What I kind of like about this is Halliburton's hitch in his shot, his low release point. It's not really the hitch. It's it's the low release point. It's how blockable it is and that it's not particularly quick to get off. That doesn't matter as much in catch-and-shoot situations. The issue for him is he can't shoot pull-up jumpers. And I've been looking at him as, okay, out of the pick-and-roll, how does he actually impose himself as a threat if he can't knock down the pull-up to keep people honest? And if that's not where his primary offense is coming from, if it's off the ball, if it's as a cutter and a secondary playmaker and a spot-up shooter, and then he's a plus defender, that's interesting. So I am interested in that pick by the Kings, and I wonder how he develops long-term. Obviously, though, De'Aaron is still their guy. They just extended him a massive deal. So I'm sure that that's good for you to see. And Halliburton, I think that that value makes sense. My third choice here, I do want to shout out another late lottery guy, Aaron Neesmith. 14th of the Celtics I love just because it's immediate shooting and potential for defense and there's not much more that you could ask for or need for this Celtics squad except maybe a quality big man but you're not going to get that at 14 especially with Jalen Smith off the board I am going to give this honor though officially to Onyeko Kongwu going to the Atlanta Hawks sixth overall because I just think it's the perfect long-term option it to me has been a dream scenario for them for a very long time it's going to be weird for him initially with Gallinari now crowding up that front court even more, not like they're at conflicting positions, but just thinking about how strange of a assembled basketball team the Hawks are right now. He's not going to be getting minutes over Capella that much to begin with, I wouldn't imagine, but I cannot think of a better long-term option because Capella is not going to be their guy down the road if they're trying to contend long-term. You're talking about a guy who can be a, a dynamic role man, maybe some playmaking off the roll, but really it's the defensive versatility, it's the switchability, it's his knack for protecting the rim and also getting out there and you know hanging with guards I just can't think of a better option there and it's something that this Hawks team needs because your two most complete offensive players right now in Trey Young and John Collins are huge defensive liabilities you have to make up for that somewhere maybe Onyeka doesn't have the superstar ceiling of some of the guys who went above him but although actually at four and five I don't think you're really talking about superstar ceilings with Patrick Williams and Isaac Okoro, but I do think his floor is really high, and I think that this was the perfect basketball fit. Any other lottery picks that you wanted to shout out? 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I want to mention, not a lottery pick, I want to mention, I've also changed, I think, Cole Anthony to the Magic fits a little more just because he's going to have the ball in his hands so much. I, I want to touch on uh, the Okungwu pick, though, for a second. What do you think that means for, uh, with signing Gallinari, with bringing in Okungwu, does that officially mean that the Hawks are going to move on from John Collins? That's an interesting question. I think that it's very possible, and we've heard the rumors of the trade for some time. I do think, though, you know, you're talking about a guy who's a productive 20 and 10 a night, basically, at his age, and we've heard that in the offseason, his playmaking has improved a little bit. So to me, it's more of an indication that they're going to move on from Capella long-term because I just don't think that there is a path in which he is their guy down the road, and I think that this makes it possible to where Collins isn't ideal anywhere defensively. He's not ideal at the four because his lateral mobility isn't quite there. He's not ideal at the five because he doesn't quite have the length, the rim protection to be great there. But if you put him alongside a guy like Onyeka, maybe he can hang with fours. Onyeka can also switch out and guards fours, and he can guard guys much smaller and quicker than that. So to me, it says Capella's not our guy. They knew that already. Take the best player available, debatably. Maybe Killian Hayes is above him. Maybe Denny's above him. But one of the best players available who also fits what should be a position of need Okay, so let's talk now about the rest of the first round. What was your favorite non-lottery first-round pick in this draft? So I thought about going with a guy like Leandro Balmaro, uh, like you said, but I'm going to go with Desmond Bain. Uh, I wasn't extremely high on him coming into the draft, but I at least expected Bain to go middle uh, middle of the first round in the lottery. Uh, I think his age definitely factored into him slipping to the last pick of the first round, though, him being 22. He's a Swiss Army knife. He'll serve so many different roles for the Grizzlies. I think he would have fit on any NBA roster. He averaged 16 points per game in college because of his finishing at the rack, his uh, spot-up shooting on the perimeter, and he shot 44% from deep in college. He's going to be deadly on the wings alongside John Morant's passing vision, and if you want him to run point uh, out of the pick and roll, he can do that because he's got he's just a smart veteran decision maker. He's got great passing vision, and he also offers, he's just a gritty and grindy player. I just think he fits Memphis so well. He cuts off perimeter attacks. He rotates well. He's extremely strong, and he can rebound. He averaged six per game in college. Uh, he's going to be an immediate impact rotation player for Memphis, and honestly, Carson, I think if Justice Winslow comes around comes back and isn't the same player, I think Desmond Bain could be starting by the end of the season and taking his minutes. I don't know how they let this kid slip to the 30th pick. This pick feels to me very Dylan Brooksy because you're talking about a guy who was an established long-term college player and you look at him and you say, okay, is he dynamic athletically? No, but you know there are some things that he does very, very well. And for Desmond Bain, it is being one of the best pure shooters in this draft. It is his playmaking instincts, his basketball IQ. Not long defensively, but competitive and smart there. So I like this pick a lot. I think it's a great value pickup for them because the floor is really high. The ceiling's not as high as a bunch of other guys, but you know what? You don't need to take a swing on that with a 30th pick if you're Memphis and you have so many young guys who you already like a lot. So I will say for this category, for me, my top two would be Bomaro and Maxi, but I already kind of talked about them. I think they both ended up in ideal basketball fits and pound for pound as far as where they went in the draft. They are absolutely my favorites. I will say that also I think Sadiq Bey to the Pistons at 19 is a real steal. Um, maybe not a tremendously high ceiling, but again, at 19, you'll take a guy who brings you some of the best shooting in the draft in really high-level perimeter defense. But my ultimate selection will be Malachi Flynn at 29 to the Toronto Raptors. 
Honestly, you could probably single out any Raptors pick as one of your favorites and look smart down the road because that guy is going to turn into the best version of himself. But I do think this is a great pickup. He is one of the most talented guards in this draft. Point Blake can play on both ends. Such a great operator out of the pick and roll. And it's not just his killer pull-up jumper. It's not just his finishing around the rim. It is... He's such a good live dribble passer. And he's so patient in the pick and roll. He just handles himself like he's a veteran guy. And I think he's going to be fantastic there. And then off the ball, he has real catch-and-shoot potential. The dude has a beautiful stroke, and he's a plus defender. So I think that he's a starting point guard in this league, which is a hell of a thing to get at 29 because it is much harder to be a starting point guard than it is to be a starter at any other position. You have to be able to facilitate. You have to be able to score. You debatably have to even be a plus defender. I think that he can do all of those things and completely one of my favorite picks of the draft out of the teams that we didn't already highlight. Anyone else stand out for you here? Uh, not really. I think that Malachi Flynn's a really good pick, though. Uh, and do you think, just on Flynn, do you think he's, a, I guess, a contingency plan for if Van Vliet uh, dips? I think they're expecting Van Vliet to leave at this point. It seems like that's far and away the most likely outcome. And this is a pretty good option to fill that role. And long term, I'm not going to say he's going to be Fred Van Vliet, but I do think he'll be a quality starting point guard in this league. So let's move on to the next round. Who was your favorite pickup in the second round? So I talked about them uh, earlier. It's both the Dallas Mavericks selections. You talk about uh, Josh Green. I do think he's a bit of a question mark as a first-round pick. I didn't fall in love with that. But they knocked it out of the park in the second round. They addressed their two biggest needs. They needed another big-time late-game shooter for Luka. They ranked 26th in clutch offensive efficiency. And Tyrell Terry gives them that. And... Through Josh Richardson trade, you get a plus here because you gave up Seth Curry, but you're basically bringing him right back in in Tyrell Terry. Well, I didn't want them to trade him. He plays stylistically identical. He'll fill his role perfectly as a secondary ball handler and a catch-and-shooter. And I may be coming in hot with this, but in two to three years, I think Tyrell Terry and Luka Doncic could potentially be the greatest offensive guard tandem in NBA history. And as I say that uh, live on air... I'm really crossing my fingers he doesn't turn out to be Trey Burke, but <laughs> notice I said two <laughs> biggest needs. Their best defender last season was arguably Dorian Finney-Smith. By drafting Tyler Bay, you get the most versatile defender in the draft. 6'7 with a 7'1 wingspan. He can switch on to bigs. He can switch on to guards in the pick and roll. If Rick Carlisle wants to go super small ball, they could even run him at the 5 uh, because he ran it in college, and he's just a tremendous leaper and shot blocker. Taking these guys, the Mavericks not only got younger, they got better. Uh, the Mavericks killed the second round. Realistically, these two were my two favorite second round picks. I'm going to talk about them in a category that we have coming right up. But you know what? Actually, I'll just merge them. Because our next question is, which guy ended up with his dream fit? And we will still get your answer on that in a moment. But for me, it's both of these guys. Because you talk about the positions of needs. They fill them perfectly. Our player comparison, your player comparison for Tyrell Terry was Seth Curry with potentially more on-ball creation. And I think that when you're talking about then you dish out Seth, you get a real, and this is just speaking to the value of this trade overall, which I thought was a win for both teams, but particularly for the Dallas Mavericks, you get a real secondary playmaker and a high-level defender in Josh Richardson. And you get the 36th pick of the draft, which then you turn into Tyler Bay, who I think has... Real potential to be a Dwight Powell kind of guy as a rim runner with then much better shooting touch because he can stretch it out there and we'll see how sustainable it is. But he did shoot 37% on 
relatively small volume in his final year of college, but was a 75% free throw shooter. So he projects well there and massive defensive versatility. Easily one of the most defensively versatile guys in this draft. I think that he is a spark plug. He's incredibly energetic. He's a dynamic athlete. That's a huge win. And then Tyrell Terry, to me, was a lottery guy. And Tyler Bay is a guy who I might have taken in the top 20, honestly. I think that highly of his value and how he projects to the next level. I think he's a guy who is better in the NBA than in college. But Tyrell Terry has so many tools. And I really do think, we look at this Mavs team right now, and they have found success with Luka and a bunch of shooters and guys who just fill their roles straight up. And that is great. Long term, though, this is true for every single team. You need that second guy who can make a little magic happen with the ball in his hands. Tyrell Terry has that real potential. That's not out of the realm of possibility to me. So immediately, he's going to be hopefully a 40% three-point shooter on high volume and fill that Seth Curry role. And then long term, has real potential to be excellent alongside Luka in a co-star role. So I love those. My favorite second round pick outside of that, though, would be Nico Mannion to the Golden State Warriors. Because at 48, I think that that is great value. I think he has the potential to immediately facilitate the Warriors' second unit. I think that he is one of the most gifted passers in this class as far as his ability to deliver the ball on target with touch from a number of angles out of the pick and roll is highly competent there. Has legitimate floater touch. Has legitimate three-point shot. I understand that there were inconsistencies in college that some people are concerned about. I understand that his shot fell off a little bit towards the end of the season. Although, personally, I would be shocked if he's not at least a solid three-point shooter. Probably a good one at the next level. So, you're not looking for stars with the 48th pick. You're looking for a guy who fills a role at a high level. Nico Mannion will do that. I think it's ridiculous he fell here. And I will shout out another guy in that same vein. When we did our... What will this draft look like in five years episode? The two guys I singled out as the second round picks who will have a pretty certain value in the league that teams will regret passing up on. I said Nico Mannion and I said Grant Riller. And both those guys didn't just slip into the second round. They slipped deep into the second round. Grant Riller to me going 56th to the Charlotte Hornets where it almost felt like it was a home area recognition pick because he played at the college of Charleston and then a Carolina team takes him in the Charlotte Hornets. That was just crazy to me. I think that he is one of the most advanced shot makers in the draft. He's a bucket. He will get you buckets in this league. And even if he's Trey Burke, we say that like it's a bad thing. Trey Burke is a, he's an NBA guy because he can score the hell out of the ball, even if he's a minus elsewhere. And I think that Riller has better tools in other categories. Any other second round picks that you want to shout out before we get into your dream fit guy? No, but I want to touch on your Nico Mannion pick. I mean, I had the guy, we both had him projected as a lottery pick uh, back in February. I don't get how you let a 6'3 guy who's 190, he's got great size and length already for the position. I just don't know how he slipped that late to the draft with, yeah, he may have been inconsistent in college. He is going to provide wonders for this Warriors bench that was horrible last season. The best pick the Warriors could have made that late. And it's a huge position of need because for years they haven't had someone who can run that second unit. Sean Livingston was obviously did it at a pretty high level in stretches, but then it became the Quinn Cook era. And now there was nobody filling that role last year. Nobody whatsoever. It's Damian Lees and it's Jordan Pools. And those guys are not facilitators whatsoever. They are just looking at the bucket and they're going to put up shots and see what they can do there. So to have a high IQ guy even at a young age, I think can fill that role. And they're probably not going to pick up a better option on the open market. It just doesn't seem like it's in the cards considering their cap limitations. So who do you think? I already answered this one. I said that I think Tyrell Terry and Tyler Bay ended up with their dream fit in Dallas. 
Who do you think ended up in their ideal situation? Uh, I'm going with Devin Vassell. Um, he's a tremendous help defender with his quick instincts, agility, length, and speed. Uh, and I just can't think of many other players that fit the Spurs' needs and how Vassell plays. He averaged uh, one and a half steals and one block per game at FSU. And he based his defensive style of play after a former Spur and one of the greatest defenders of the planet in Kawhi Leonard, relentlessly watching his film. And it didn't take long for Kawhi to drastically improve the Spurs' defense. I think he brings that to the table because last season, San Antonio was uncharacteristically 25th rated in defensive rating. So he's immediately bringing that up. On the offensive side, I also think it fits him well. He doesn't really have a solid dribble. He's not a pick and roller. But with DeJounte Murray, with Derek White, with DeMar DeRozan likely to take all of the playmaking and ball handling duties, all he has to do is come off screens and get open off ball and be ready to catch and shoot. San Antonio was 28th in three-point attempt rate last season, and Vassell shot 41.5% behind the arc in college. He's an immediate impact player on the defensive side of the ball and from the perimeter and he's only 20. I think he's got the potential in the future as a secondary ball handler and an off-the-dribble shooter for the San Antonio team because of his excellent IQ and his shot. Uh, I don't think there was a better landing spot for Devin Vassell because of how he stylistically plays basketball and what the Spurs needed. I totally agree. And the Spurs are just beginning their rebuild. That's what's coming, obviously. LaMarcus Aldridge and DeMar DeRozan are not long for San Antonio at this point. Basically, every contract except DeJounte Murray and guys on rookie deals will be expired after this season. So you take a guy who is as sure of a thing as there is. The ceiling isn't particularly high, in my opinion, but you talk the 3 and D value is a sure thing with Devin Vassell. That, to me, is a great pick at 11. So we've said a lot of positive stuff here. Let's flip to the negative just as we wrap up this draft conversation. What were your least favorite picks of this draft? Like you said, live on air, Carson, I'm, I'm going to go with Patrick Williams. I, I, like you said, I don't know if I would have drafted him in the lottery either. He's got size at 6'8", 225, and he's a smart defender, but his offensive game is so underdeveloped, I don't even know if I would want him on the floor right out of the gates. Nine points per game and one assist per game at Florida State, at Florida State where I remind you, he came off the bench. He just... He just doesn't do anything exceptionally well on offense. He's an okay pick-and-roll decision uh, maker. He's an okay passer. At Florida State, he had 50 turnovers and 29 assists. He's not really blowing me away with his 1-to-2 assist-to-turnover ratio. He's an okay spot-up shooter. He shot 32% from deep. I get it. Patrick's only 19. He's got a lot of upside and a lot of time to get better. But when Chicago already has a defensive stud in Tomas Sadoransky, when you've got the rights to Chris Dunn, when you've got a defensive stud on the wing in Otto Porter, and you don't have a playmaking point guard, I don't understand how you take Williams over a guy like Tyrese Halliburton or Killian Hayes or just a more offensively developed wing in Denny Abdiha. In my opinion, there was no worse pick in this draft than Patrick Williams at four. I said in the moment that it was my least favorite pick that I've ever seen. Now, I will say that that might have been a little strong because I think that what we've seen is that Williams impressed a lot of people in the in the pre-draft process, and we obviously are not witness to that. I did see a video circulating today of him just in some pickup, and he definitely looked more fluid than I'm seeing from him. He was a little more creative with the ball in his hands, looked a little more dynamic, so... Maybe he's better than we actually realize. Maybe he's better than what he showed at Florida State, and he is young, so he does have a ways to go. But this, to me, still has to be up there as my least favorite pick in this draft just because I don't see the translatable skills as far as the high offensive ceiling based on what we've seen from him on the floor because I'm not going to let my opinion be flipped by a workout video. 
I can't let that happen. It has happened to men better than me, and it has never gone well. It's a reason to think that Frank Nielakino was going to be a star in this league a few years ago. You see what he's doing with Drew Hanlon, and you think, what a stud. Doesn't matter. Show me that you can do it on the court. But it is reasonable to assume that he has improved to a certain extent. However, I still think his creation off the dribble, if you watch him play at Florida State, he can get to his spots from mid-range, and that's fine. That's not going to happen in the NBA. That's not how he's going to be creating, and he can use his body well there, but he's not overly creative with the ball. He wasn't particularly fluid at Florida State. He was a little bit clunky, I would say. He could get to his spots. He wasn't going to blow you away athletically with his quickness. He wasn't going to dynamically shoot off the dribble from deep or off the catch where he was a 32% shooter, and it's not a quick shot. It's not a hitch, I wouldn't say, but he takes a second to get it up. And I don't think he projects defensively as well as a multiple position defender as a guy like Okoro because he was a little bit too heavy footed. So maybe he's evolved. Maybe he really has gotten better in this pre-draft process. But based on what we saw of him at Florida State, it blows my mind. It completely blows my mind because even if he has 3 and D value, that's not what you're betting on with a top five pick in this draft. You want to take a gamble on something that is better than that, certainly. And... It's kind of the same thinking with the fifth pick in the draft, which was Isaac Okoro, which I also didn't love because you're basically conceding to me he's going to be a solid guy. Maybe he's better than that. Maybe if he really figures out the playmaking, he's going to be a plus defender for sure. He's the best perimeter defender in the class. His outside shot is a question mark, but there is no star potential for Isaac Okoro in my eyes. No star ceiling, not creative enough with the ball in his hands, doesn't have the quick enough first step, so I just don't see it there. So I didn't really like either of those guys as top five picks, just not a high enough ceiling in my eyes. And I want to mention another guy in the top 10. I said it on air, uh, Obi Toppin at eight. A lot of what you said about Okoro, I think, applies to Obi. Look, he's going to be a solid player immediately for the New York Knicks, but when you're in the midst of a rebuild, don't you want to take a chance? Don't you want to draft a player that projects and plays winning basketball to me Obi just he's a watered down Blake Griffin and when you're taking a big that just doesn't have a shot you're not going to win basketball games New York you're in the middle of a rebuild take take Killian Hayes bite the bullet or no Hayes went at seven they couldn't have taken Hayes take Halliburton because you whiffed on Nitalikina just admit the error of your ways and get somebody that can win you basketball games in the future. To me, Obi Toppin will be a solid rotational player, but you can get a solid rotational player in free agency. You cannot get a transcendent talent in free agency. I don't hate the Obi pick. It's not my favorite. I'm not a huge Obi guy. At eight, though, I'm okay with it. I do think that he has pretty certain offensive value. He's going to be a floor spacer. He's going to be potentially a nice guy out of the pick and roll, though that may not be his primary offense. Maybe he sits in the dunker spot and can be a weak side lob threat. I just think he's going to find his way to get his buckets, his 12 to 15 points a game. The question to me is how does he get better than that offensively, which I don't really see the path for, and does that outweigh his bad defense, which I don't really see the path for. So I didn't love it, but I didn't hate it. I just want to shout out a couple more outside of lottery that I wasn't a huge fan of. Isaiah Stewart at 16. We talked about, you talked about how the Pistons had a good draft in your eyes, which I think they did with their other two first-round picks. I just think Stewart is a little bit archaic to me. He's a back-to-the-basket big. He's not really mobile laterally. He's not really an explosive athlete. He doesn't have any playmaking. So the thing that could save this pick would be he has a lot of heart. It looks like he's going to work hard out there, and he does have potential for a shot. His shot looks good. It's a good-looking stroke, but at the same time, he made 11 jump shots in college. So I don't really want to bet on that being a sure thing. And if he can't make the shot, I think that this is a huge bust as far as where he was taken. And then a couple more big men that I just wasn't a huge fan of with where they went. Zeke Naji at 22 to the Nuggets. I like Zeke. He's a dynamic 
Guy who can run the floor. He's a really fluid athlete, but there's too many defensive questions. I don't know if he's a four or five in this league. I think that depends on his shot. I don't think he can defend fives, so I didn't love that for the Nuggets. And then Udoka Azabuki at 27. I just didn't like it as a first-rounder. We talked about it. I think he can be a spot guy in this league, playing 10, 15 minutes a game for a long time. I think he can guard great post-bigs, but he will get punished in the pick-and-roll. He's not mobile enough on his feet. He doesn't have a versatile offensive game, so I just didn't love that there. So that's going to do it for our draft talk. There was a number of significant trades this past week, though, that we haven't been able to talk about. We already touched on what the Sixers did, but if you want to elaborate on that at all, they did trade Al Horford, the 34th pick in this draft, which ended up being Theo Maladon, and a lightly protected 2025 first for Danny Green. What were your thoughts on that move? Uh, Value-wise, I don't like it for Philadelphia, uh, giving up two first-round picks, and when that pick turns out to be Theo Maladon, I like it even less just because I think he gives a lot of upside as a point guard in the NBA. But you get off that big contract, uh, There's, I didn't think Al Horford would be traded this offseason because I didn't know anybody who would be foolish enough to trade for that big a deal. Uh, Oklahoma City, though, I think it fits Al a little well just because I know they're going to be on a bit of a rebuild, um, but a full rebuild, excuse me, but... With Horford in, uh, he gives a little bit of veteran leadership and can mentor some of these younger guys that you're going to have. So for a locker room setting and culture-wise, I like that move for OKC. And just because you're getting off that contract, the best move I think they made, though, was that Seth Curry deal. Uh, Just because, put as many pure shooters around Ben Simmons as possible. Josh Richardson didn't really fit this well just because he's not that, he's not that, consistent threat where he is going to murder you from deep every time. He's an okay shooter. He's an okay ball handler, but he certainly wasn't fit to fill in that Jimmy Butler role, which he was brought in for. So I think the Philadelphia 76ers got significantly better with all of their moves, drafts, trades. The Sixers are probably my favorite team out East, I think. Interesting. So here's how I sort of progressed with the Horford deal. At first, I thought like you, it's not great value to give up a first because the Horford is not a a positive at this point. But then I reconsidered because I thought maybe they could go out there and get a guy like Fournier. I don't think they could have. You touched on it when you said, I didn't think anyone was going to trade for Al Horford this offseason. Neither did I. And they got someone to do that. And that's a win. And you get an actual asset in Danny Green. So when you think about the positive of getting Horford off the books, you're basically giving up the 34th pick and a protected first five years down the road for Danny Green. I think that's a win for what you're trying to do right now because they could not run it back. That was out of the question. Horford, Harris, and Bede in Simmons minutes, I've said it before, they played 420 minutes together. They had a 99.6 offensive rating. It's significantly worse than any offense in the NBA. If you just take Horford out of the picture and you make it Richardson, Harris, and Bede in Simmons minutes, then they had a 105.6 offensive rating, but still, that's basically average. It's certainly not what you want to be as a playoff team. It's actually below average. They still only shot 31.5% from deep, and now you add a 40% career three-point shooter and a plus wing defender in Danny Green. That is a wing, and it goes along with what you said in the Josh Richardson deal. Giving up Richardson and the 36th pick for Seth Curry is a lot, especially when that turns out to be Tyler Bay, who I love. But for a literal 44% three-point shooter, one of the most efficient shooters from deep in the history of this game, that's huge. So... For the Mavs angle, you know, it hurts to lose Seth, but you improve defensively on the wings. You add a secondary playmaker, which matters in Richardson. And I do think that he will definitely be better than a 34% three-point shooter in Dallas because there's so much more room to work with. But 
I think largely both of these deals are win-wins. I honestly don't love the the deal for the Thunder as far as Horford. I guess you might as well get a first down the road. That's just all that they seem to be doing. I hope that they at some point stockpile them together and turn it into a big top five pick so it's worth it because when you have more picks over the next five years than roster spots, that's cute. It doesn't actually matter though, but I thought these were wins all around and I do think the Sixers are better right now and they are scarier right now because I don't know, man. We've seen what they can do with shooting around them and it is a scary thing. Let's talk about another draft night trade. Luke Kennard was involved in a three-team deal. The Brooklyn Nets got Landry Shamit. The Pistons got the 19th pick, which ended up being Sadiq Bey. And the LA Clippers got Luke Kennard. I love this. What did you think about this? Yeah, I loved it too. I thought that every single team involved in this trade came out a winner. Um, for the Pistons to get Sadiq Bey... He gives so much upside as a 3 and D wing, and he's young, which is the most important thing to have in Detroit. You have two young guys in Hayes and Sadiq Bay that you can now build around. He shot 45% from deep at Villanova. Uh, although I like Luke Kennard's game, Sadiq Bay gives you so much more defensively. At 6'8", with a 6'10 wingspan, he can guard four, possession, uh, four positions. Excuse me, He's extremely agile. He rotates well. Uh, for the Nets, Landry Shamit, a career 40% three-point shooter, is a huge pickup, especially with the impending free agency of Joe Harris. As, player as players collapse on KD and Kyrie, he will be open all day, camped in the corner. And for the Clippers, I like Kennard just as another dependable ball handler and pick-and-roll runner as well as a tough shot maker late when Pat Bev or Paul George or Lou Williams are struggling with their shot uh, like we had last in the playoffs. I think Cool Hand Luke will be there to bail them out. And <laughs> when Luke Kennard ultimately uh, lets them down on the other side of the floor, Leonard George and Zubach will be there to help him out. Uh, like I said, though, this is a win-win-win for all three teams. The Pistons get younger, the Nets get a shooter, and the Clippers get another shooter as well. Uh, great trade. That's so funny. I literally wrote down win-win-win for this because I think that it's perfect. The Nets add proven wing depth and shooting with Landry Shamit, but I think the Clips are the biggest winners. And what this says to me is that it's time to move on from Lou Williams because you can compare these two as players. Lou may have a cooler name. He may have flashier stats. But if you break it down categorically, Kennard is a real pick-and-roll facilitator. He has proven that. He can make high-level decisions out of there. He can make the pocket passes. He can make the reads. He was 78th percentile out of pick-and-roll this year, and it was 28% of his offense that came out of that action. Lou Will was 70th percentile in the pick-and-roll, so Kennard was actually more efficient there. Kennard, unequivocally the better pure shooter, 42% from deep on 3.8 catch-and-shoot threes per game. He also, though, was better on pull-up threes at 37% to Lou Will's 31%, and I can guarantee you that he will not be as much of a minus defensively as Lou Williams. He has too much pride. He has too much to compete for on that end. Doesn't have great physical tools. Is one of the honorable men who is in the negative wingspan crew. So he doesn't have the tools to be a plus defender, certainly. But I do think he will give more effort and not be as easily exploitable. Just because he's a little bit bigger and sturdier there. And... He can close with the stars because of his off-ball shooting. He can run the second unit at a high level with his playmaking and his ability to score the ball. So I think that's a huge win. I do want to break some news right now as we are doing this podcast because the arms race seems to be picking up. The LA Lakers have signed Montrez Harold to a two-year deal. Logan, we're going to get into free agency shortly in full, but I want to talk about this right now. What are your thoughts of that? How do they have the money to sign Trez? I guess that he really wasn't drawing that much on the open market. I mean, we kind of projected this on the ISO pod. Nobody really wanted Montrez Harrell there either, but 
Uh, for the Lakers, this is a huge win. Uh, you get another guy that can play really solid defense alongside Anthony Davis. Obviously, I think he'll be a replacement for Dwight Howard. Um, I don't know how it... I'm just trying to think about how you run offensive sets with Trez if he's going to be able to get open alongside Anthony Davis. Uh, that concerns me definitely, but for that defensive big man role that Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee filled, Montrez Harrell can do that at a just a greater rate as them. So, a good pickup. I don't know how... I want to learn the contract details of this because I don't know how they had enough money after trading for Dennis Schroeder to make this happen. Yeah, I don't really know either because they were considerably over the cap already. Let me just say this. Trez cannot do defensively what Dwight and JaVale did. He certainly can't do what Dwight did. He just doesn't have the physical tools. You're talking about a guy at 6'7", who I think we've seen exploited there in his inability to really guard out of the post at a high level. Offensively, I don't love the fit alongside AD because he's obviously not going to be a floor spacer. He's going to do some of his work with his back to the basket, and either than that, it's going to be out of the pick and roll. I wonder if this hurts the efficiency of LeBron AD pick and roll because you know that Trez is going to be there clogging up the paint. So I honestly don't love this. Now, I understand that you're adding the sixth man of the year. I think that we might see what obviously the Clippers have had for the past couple years replicated in LA with maybe some shrewder Trez action with the second unit just dominating out of the pick and roll there, but... I don't love it. I get that you're adding talent, and that is obviously a win, but as far as basketball fit, I'm really not a huge fan. So it's interesting. I will certainly say that. So what's the ideal lineup uh, if they put Trez on the floor? I think you just got to run him with the second unit. And if you play him 18, 20 minutes a game, I think it's good because offensively, he is a legitimate plus. We have seen that at this point. If you play him as effectively your center there, then he can really do some damage, especially if you give him shooters around to work with. He can be really good there. The thing is, he's certainly not closing. And how do you keep him from diminishing in value like we just saw in this past postseason where he averaged 10 a game and was played off the floor consistently for the Clippers, one of their huge underperformers? I don't know if they can avoid that, especially with a team that plays big, that is not overwhelmingly great shooting from deep as of last year. I have my questions there. I don't like it nearly as much as the Schroeder deal, Let's talk about that right now, though, because the Lakers are clearly stockpiling and they are trying to get better from what they were last year. So let's talk about the Dennis Schroeder deal. It was Schroeder for Danny Green in the 28th pick. You're talking about a guy who, in my opinion, should have been the sixth man of the year this past season. What did you think about this for the Lakers? Well, I loved it. I mean, you don't really give up a whole lot of value at all. Look, I know Danny Green is a valuable defender in today's league, but uh, his shooting woes, you've, you've seen all the memes. Uh, Danny Green just doesn't have the shot. He didn't shoot well with the Lakers this past postseason. He didn't shoot well with the Raptors in the season previous when they won the title. And I like Jaden McDaniels, but it's the 28th pick. For that, you get Dennis Schroeder, where now you don't have to depend on Kyle Kuzma and Contavious Caldwell-Pope getting in double-digit scoring to win. The Lakers' Achilles heel, Achilles heel this season was a third scorer, a secondary ball handler, and a late-game shot maker. And Dennis Schroeder checks all of those boxes. 19 points per game, 4 assists per game, and he shot 38.5% from deep last season. And I think Schroeder provides a little versatility for the Lakers because from his time in OKC where he was running behind Chris Paul and SGA, he's fine running off of the bench if they want to bring Rondo back and start him for the defensive capabilities. With that being said, though, if he's six man, if he starts, AD and LeBron now have a third guy for the end of the games to depend on to make tough shots. Uh, this was the best move the Lakers could have made outside of trading for Chris Paul. You put it perfectly. I've been talking about a Dinwiddie deal. Schroeder, to me, is the better player, and this is the better outcome for them because of how great he can be without the ball in his hands. And I think that we really saw that 
with the Thunder's three-guard lineups this year because in Atlanta, he was playing more of a truer point guard role, which I really don't think is what he is. He's a solid playmaker. He's a solid facilitator, but he can get buckets and he can do it as a pure shooter now over 41% on catch and shoot triples this past year. So this is a huge win. And he also is going to compete on D. He can easily close and he can run the second unit. It's like what I said about Kennard, but basically better in every conceivable way, more dynamic, going to be potentially a plus defender, I think. So I'm really all in on this deal. I think it's a home run. And I think that it just puts them over the top to me as the title favorites. And I think that they retain that title, but there was another team that made a real move to try to insert themselves back into that conversation. The Milwaukee Bucks went out there and picked up Drew Holiday. They gave up a lot to do it. Eric Bledsoe, George Hill, three first-round picks, and two pick swaps. Is that move enough in your eyes to make the Bucks the favorite out of the East now? I know you said that you think the Sixers might have that title, but what were your thoughts on this move? And, of course, it does have to be mentioned that initially we thought that they would be adding Bogdan Bogdanovich to the crew as well and then mayhem ensued it turned out he hadn't actually agreed to the sign and trade so now he is just going to be hitting the free agency market so what do you think of the holiday move as far as what it means for the Bucks and their title pursuit just just so I can uh, clarify this what the Pelicans just gave up Drew Holiday yes <laughs> what a bad trade for the Bucks. <laughs> I mean personally I think that when you give up a guy like Eric Bledsoe, I feel like by bringing in Drew Holiday, you're not really upgrading that much. I feel like Drew Holiday does a lot of the same things that Eric Bledsoe does. He's a good defender. He's a good playmaker. But the issue in Milwaukee is they just don't have enough shooting. By giving up George Hill, you lose one of the best shooters in your lineup. By bringing in Drew Holiday, you don't get significantly better. I understand that you want a secondary ball handler for Giannis, which he does. You get a little bit tougher on defense, which he provides, but... The Bucks need shooting. If they had had an offseason like the Philadelphia 76ers where they got a lot of young shooting assets, I would say the Milwaukee Bucks are my favorite out east. You have to score points late in games. And Giannis and Eric Bledsoe and Chris Middleton couldn't do that. I understand Giannis got hurt, but we've seen this in two playoffs now. So, uh, no, they're not my favorites out east because when you have a team like Philadelphia where in these late game moments they're going to have a lot of shooters on the floor with the Boston Celtics where I expect Jason Tatum to take a massive leap and lead this offense uh, even better this season alongside a growing Jalen Brown and Kemba Walker, I don't think the Bucs are the best team out East. I think there are two better than them, and it is going to stay that way until the Bucs bring in more shooting. I'm going to have to really think hard about this one, but I do think with this move, you maintain the league's best defense, and yes, they gave up a lot of value to get Drew Holiday in here, but at the same time, those picks mean nothing if Giannis Antetokounmpo leaves because he didn't feel like you went all in enough, so they had to do something aggressive. My question is, how much greater was the value that was demanded for a guy like Drew Holiday than Chris Paul? Because, frankly, the Suns gave up less to get Chris Paul. And that would have been a huge win because then you're talking about a guy who brings the same defense, better playmaking, not the same defense, I shouldn't say, but plus defense, and is a legitimate closer, a top 10 closer in basketball. Drew Holiday is not that. However, I don't want to pretend he's something that he's not, like he's some bona fide star. But I do think that it is a significant upgrade from Eric Bledsoe because although Holiday is over the past five years a sub-35% three-point shooter, Bledsoe just disappeared. And he killed their spacing completely over these past two postseasons. He's shooting 20-something percent from deep. People can sag off him and he doesn't punish them whatsoever. So to turn that 
into a, at the very least, respectable, sometimes good three-point shooter in Drew Holiday, who brings a little more creation off the dribble and more shot-making off the dribble and all the same defense and playmaking. I do think of that's a win. And they gave up a lot of value. You mentioned losing Hill Hurts. That's not a throwaway. That's a guy who ran your second unit well, was the most efficient three-point shooter in basketball. My question is, Maybe Dante DiVincenzo fills that role. That would be really interesting, and I'm optimistic about that now that they didn't lose him. But I do want to ask you, how much do you think losing Bogdanovich hurts here? I guess losing is weird to say because they never actually had him, but they thought they did. Because I thought, you're talking about adding shooting and closing, shot-making off the dribble. That was a huge win, and now that goes back. No, exactly. I felt the same way. You bring another shooter into Milwaukee. Like, I don't like Drew Holiday by himself as an addition to this lineup, but if they could run, you just have so much versatility at those guard spots with DiVincenzo, with Bogdanovich, with Holiday. Uh, you would have really good spacing that you struggled with, as you said, with Bledsoe. So uh, I think it really does hurt them. It's another valuable weapon. Uh, Carson, I want to ask, do you know how the Kings were able to even propose that to the Bucks, having restricted rights? No. I don't know what was going on there, but something foolish, I guess. Something that Bogdan Bogdanovich had not signed off on. If they had Bogdanovich, are they your favorites out East? Yes. I really think so. And you are compromising depth in a significant way that is not to be diminished, especially now with the fact that they've lost a guy like Wesley Matthews, who was significant on the wings for them, but... What I've said about this Bucks team is they have their system, and that's great. They play incredibly high-level defense. They put shooters around Giannis, and that's all great. But you need guys who can play basketball, who can go out there and get a bucket, whose value doesn't diminish in the playoffs. Bogdan Bogdanovich, even though I don't love him in certain situations, would have been that, and they lose out on that, and that hurts. Let's talk about another deal that we just briefly mentioned. A bunch has been said about it, but I'll just put this in specific terms. Because it was over a week ago now, I believe, or close to it. That's not true, actually. I think it's been four days. It just feels like it's been over a week. The Suns did go out there and get Chris Paul. How high is their ceiling now, having done that? Very high. I say three to five seed potential, maybe a Western Conference appearance. I mean, with their interdivisional rivals, the Clippers' playoff performance and a coaching change gives me hope that the Suns could be better. Sadly, Clay Thompson's injury opens the door for a potential Warriors drop-off and the Suns could be better. Uh, the Lakers, to me, are the only team, and I guess I could say this about any team in the West, the Lakers are the only team that are significantly better than the Suns in the entirety of the West. Chris Paul picks up for whatever defensive concerns you have about Devin Booker, and now Devin Booker can play off-ball, which he's never had the opportunity to because, well, outside of last year with Ricky Rubio, but he, he plugs that in by losing Rubio. He'll be open for screens all day if, they, if Aiden continues as a screener off-ball. Um... And then, I think an important asset, not just bringing in Chris Paul, I think pairing up Jalen Smith and DeAndre Ayton makes the Suns even better. You have, <laughs> by pairing up Smith and Ayton, you at least have one big man who can defend the rim. Um, they can both potentially space the floor here in the future. They're both decent mid-range shooters. Uh, Smith and uh, Smith is a better three-point shooter than Ayton right now, but they have upside if those shots continue, if their shots continue to get better. Um, I, I think this offense, if Smith and Ayton can space the floor, is going to be nearly unstoppable. Um, if they bring in a defensive three, uh, or Miles Bridges gets significantly better, Carson, I think the Suns could be the second seed out west. Whoa. I think you need to calm down there, my friend. Especially with the fact that now Gallinari is not available in the market. 
I think their ceiling is a second round exit, and even that I doubt. I know a lot of Suns fans who I talk to are saying this roster is better than the Thunders was, and they were the five seed. I don't totally agree with that because, yes, there are more quality guys on this team, but also look at who the Thunders two through four were. You're talking about SGA, you're talking about Dennis Schroeder, and you're talking about Danilo Gallinari. Their top four guys are all scoring. Actually, CP3 was the lowest of the bunch. Those three were all at 19-plus a game. That's a kind of dynamism that this team doesn't have outside of Devin Booker. So, I really think this depends on the development of Aiton, Bridges, and Johnson. I will say, though, for certain, Devin Booker is in for a special season because, and this is just a fun little stat that I found, any lineups with Devin Booker and Ricky Rubio, a.k.a. the first competent point guard who has played with his, in his NBA career, had a 116.5 offensive rating. That's on par with the Mavs, with the greatest offenses of all time. Lineups with Rubio, Book, and Ayton had a 115.8 offensive rating. So that shows you what he does with a good point guard when he can succeed off the ball. And now, you're talking about just putting shooters around him. I love Mikhail Bridges. I think that he took strides, and I think he will continue to take strides. Cam Johnson, at the very least, is that dynamic floor spacer. So now you add a dominant pick-and-roll ball handler, a potentially dynamic role man, if Aiden develops into that. And I think that this could be a—I mean, I think it's a huge win for the Suns no matter what. They're going to be around 50 wins, which is a great place to be for Phoenix, and you obviously help— satiate Devin Booker's need to win. So they had to do it, and I think it made a lot of sense. They gave up some value, but nothing that is going to kill them. Oubre was replaceable at the Wings long-term, in my opinion, so I think it's a big win. Let's talk, though, about Kelly Oubre, because he will not be staying in Oklahoma City. He will be on the move to Golden State to join the Warriors, as they gave up a very interesting deal this was. So it's next year's pick. If it's top 10, it goes to the Thunder in one of the best drafts in recent memory, potentially. And if it is outside the top 10, then the Warriors keep it and give the Thunder two seconds. So what were your thoughts on this deal? And I will also add that we do have the details on the Montrez Harrell signing. It was two years, 19 million using the MLE, which is really the only way that they could have gotten it done. So that makes sense without some sort of other cap maneuvering. So on at that value, I do think that it makes a lot of sense because why not take that swing? Worst comes to worst, you just don't play him that much. Maybe he's not happy with that. Who cares? But talk about the Ubre deal. What did you think about that for the Warriors? Because for the Thunder, who even cares? They're just getting picks. Before I get started, I'd like to apologize uh, for calling Macau Bridges Miles just now. Um, I do know, I do know your name, Macau. Uh, for Ubre, I didn't. I don't know why the Thunder value him so low. Ubre in Phoenix, I felt was on the cusp of just breaking out. He's a, he's not a great shooter, uh, but. He was competent in spot-ups. We saw him get hot in a lot of moments for Phoenix. I think by bringing him into Golden State, you can supplement Klay Thompson's ability into two guys, in Wiggins and Ubre. You don't have to depend on Wiggins to turn into this superstar. Uh, so I like spreading the load a little bit here in Golden State. And if that pick falls out of the top 10, which it's likely to do, the Warriors just got Kelly Oubre for two seconds? That's the greatest trade I've ever heard of. This kid averaged 19 points per game last season, six boards, one and a half assists, and I think his assist numbers could go up if they just let him handle the rock a little more. Oubre is a killer, man. He's an awesome scorer off the dribble um, in spot-up situations where Devin Booker found him. The one game we went to uh, together, the Houston Rockets game, Oubre lit it up, man. He's just, he's a match waiting to go. I think... The Warriors got significantly better with this Ubre pickup, uh, just scoring the basketball. And 
he's even a dog defensively. I don't know why the Thunder would only give him up for this little value. I think he's more valuable even than a than a top 10 pick. He's a proven wing commodity. And for a young growing team, you give up a 24-year-old guy. I just don't understand it from the Thunder side because he's a guy that could grow alongside SGA and he's just a guy who can score the basketball. This is a huge win for the Warriors. It's a little bit confusing from the Thunder side, I will say. I guess that they just don't see Oubre being in that long-term mold for them as the kind of guy that they want in their system. But I think he's an awesome fit for the Warriors. He loves to attack off the dribble one-on-one. He can create for himself really well with an improved handle and improved shot off the dribble. Athletically, is obviously jaw-dropping, always has been. But with Klay Thompson now out due to an Achilles tear, so he will be out for this entire season, they need that kind of guy who can go out there and get a bucket. And we've already seen him shoot off the catch in volume, four-and-a-half threes, in catch-and-shoot situations this year, he can do that at a high level, and he's a real plus defender. So I think that this is a win. I think that you're talking about a versatile starting lineup, and if Wiseman does what he's capable of, I'm not sure what his value will be immediately, but defensively, if he can just protect the rim at a high level and maybe show some improved agility and get out there on the perimeter, you're talking about a team with a lot of potential for plus defenders. If Wiggins commits himself there, and Ubre, I think, will have value as a shooter. He's not perfect there, but he's certainly an upgrade from Wiggins, in my opinion. So I think it's an all-around win, and I think it's great value if you're talking about just two second-round picks, really. It's crazy. We're having to go through almost the whole offseason, honestly, in this one episode, although we will do, it looks like, another free agency episode next week because not everything is going to go down tonight. We have one more trade that I want to talk about, and then we'll get into everything that happened free agencies-wise. This one, probably the least big deal out of the bunch that we've talked about, but... The Portland Trailblazers did pick up Robert Covington for a couple of first-round picks, one of which is lottery-protected and Trevor Ariza. What did you think about this deal? Uh, I thought it was a pretty a pretty bad trade for the Blazers, honestly. I just don't think they got a whole lot of value back in a guy like Robert Covington. I mean, it's a position of need, and stylistically, Covington is a player that fits this extremely valuable 3 and D mold, but... I don't understand why you give two first-round picks up alongside Ariza. Ariza put up 11 points per game last season and shot 40% from deep. Covington uh, put up 11 points per game last season, but has never shot over 40% from deep. Uh, I think he's going to be a drastic improvement defensively over Ariza, but I don't think he's going to really impact winning enough for this team to warrant throwing in those two first-round picks. And with the 16th pick that they gave up, that turned out to be Isaiah Stewart, you could have taken a guy like Sadiq Bey and gotten a lot of value back. You don't have to give him up. You keep Ariza. You get Bay just to get younger and potentially better. Uh, it's not a bad trade for Portland because I think Covington is such a valuable commodity defensively. But um, to give up Ariza and two first-round picks, just not great value for Portland. It's a big overpay. And I think that we've seen that Ariza can still be a legitimate NBA player. Covington is far and away better. He's not two first-round picks better, in my opinion. And Obviously did some incredible things defensively in Houston. Showed his versatility there, his ability to bang down low with bigs, to make plays on the ball there. He was fantastic all around. But if you're Portland, what's your ceiling? You're the sixth seed, you're the seventh seed. This West is loaded. There's no world in which you get, in my opinion, even to the Western Conference Finals like they did a couple years ago. Although their team will be better because the West will be better and that run was a little bit fluky in its own respect. So I just think it's an overpay. Let's talk about free agency now. Speaking of overpays, so we do have a couple things that have happened since we started recording this. Davis Bertans was brought back to the Washington Wizards on a five-year, $80 million deal. It's big money. It's a big extension. The Wizards are clearly committing to him as one of their pivotal guys. What are your initial thoughts on that? 
Oh, I love it. We're bringing in a D-Hob with John Wall coming back. His offense is just going to be fun to watch with their floor spacing. Uh, their high pace, like in like we said on the isopod, Bertans knows how to play in Washington. He fits this system well. Um, I love it. Uh, what did you say the uh, contract details were? Five years, $80 million. All right, I'm not in love with the con- contract for a guy like who's just really a pure three-point shooter, but we know he works in Washington. This offense is going to be electric um, next season. I can't imagine a world in which he finishes this contract out in D.C., though. Okay, we have stuff happening fast now. So Joe Harris has been brought back to the Brooklyn Nets on a four-year, $75 million deal. That's a lot of money for Joe Harris. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, now alongside Landry Shamit, Joe Harris, the Nets are going to be killers from deep. This is a huge uh, signing for them. I'm just, I couldn't believe both of these guys came back, especially with both of their team's cap situations. It's huge. It's a big get for the Nets. They needed, at the very least, as many quality rotation guys as they could have, and they got that and more in Joe Harris, one of the best pure shooters in basketball. And I will say, I really like that the Wizards brought Bertans back. I don't think that's an overpay. It's a long extension, obviously, five years, but $16 million a year is perfectly reasonable for a guy who is one of the most unique weapons in basketball and really enabled them to play the kind of basketball they did. It was Bradley Beal first and foremost, but then it was Bertans. They don't play that style with the success that they did offensively if it's not for him, and so I think that that is a big win. We do have one more deal that just broke a few minutes ago. Jeremy Grant is going to the Detroit Pistons for three years, $60 million. What are your thoughts on that? I hate it. I hate it for Jeremy Grant. I hate it for the Detroit Pistons. Jeremy Grant is such a valuable asset. He could be on a winning basketball team, and he's not. Detroit is not going to make the playoffs. They're not going to make a push. I don't... I don't understand this for Detroit. He doesn't fit the timetable that they're on a young, rebuilding team. Grant would be so much more well-suited in a contending team. If it's the Nuggets, if it's the Clippers, whoever, uh, I don't like this signing on either side. I don't like this at all. I think that this is a huge loss for the Nuggets, and we'll see how they compensate for this. But when you talk about losing Plumlee and Jeremy Grant now, those are legitimate losses. I would have rather retained both of those guys than Paul Millsap, certainly Torrey Craig, who is another guy who's available on this free agent market. So you're losing the guy who in the playoffs was your third best player and defensively is obviously a massive plus, has shown the floor spacing and a bit of creation off the dribble. I don't know why it feels like Jeremy Grant is undervalued in these winning situations. The Thunder could have held on to him and they dealt him away for a first, which I think was a mistake for them straight up. But now for the Nuggets, it seems a little bit foolish to give that up and then let him walk so soon. Then again, if the Pistons are going to play him $20 million a year, I don't know what you do there. That's an overpay in my opinion. I say, you know, go up to $15 million a year you're not going to give Jeremy Grant $20 million a year, in my opinion, but it definitely hurts. And they are one of the teams that has quickly lost ground as the Clippers have gone out there and made aggressive moves and the Lakers have gone out there and made aggressive moves and the Warriors have been aggressive, although losing Clay probably takes them out of this tier. The Nuggets have kind of stood pat and they've lost a couple guys, so I don't feel great about that for them. Okay. Things are moving now. Let's talk about what had already happened before we even started. The biggest deal of the day, possibly still, Danilo Gallinari taking a three-year, $61.5 million offer to play with the Atlanta Hawks. Logan, what do you think about this? I mean, it's a good pickup for Atlanta, but I still question whether they're a playoff team out east, uh, especially with the Nets coming back and getting better 
uh, with the Raptors. With all of these teams out east, I don't know if the Hawks still make the playoffs. Um, Alongside Trey Young, this is going to be a team that spaces the floor really well, especially if guys like DeAndre Hunter and Cam Reddish can continue to get better. Uh, It's an interesting signing. I don't I don't love it just because I would have loved to see Danilo Gallinari go to another team that's contending, but uh, for a young roster, you get better out on the wings, you get a proven shooter where you don't have to count on Reddish and Hunter making these shots. Uh, It's a good signing, but I just don't think Gallinari fits this team's timetable either. It's interesting to me because the Hawks are going to score a lot of points now, but defensively, they are only getting worse right now, and I don't know how a Collins, Gallinari, Capella front court coexists with Onyeka vying to get some serious minutes there as well. You're talking about two fours and two fives there. And even if you're trying to play Gallinari at the three, that does not work defensively. So it's a little bit strange. It's a big investment. They clearly want to make the playoffs and they very well might because you have a lot of scoring punch on this team right now, but you're sending Reddish and Hunter back to the bench now after they both started for the majority of their rookie years. It seems a little strange, and Travis Schlenk is clearly trying to be aggressive right now. That's great. What does it mean, though? You're going to be the eighth seed, and are you compromising something long-term? Maybe not, but maybe. So it's interesting. I don't love it. I also don't hate it because Gallinari is a very good NBA player, and if you can get him, I understand why, and he could be a really exciting fit in this system. You talk about needing shooters and shot makers around Trey Young. He is the epitome of that. The second biggest deal money-wise outside of extensions that had happened before we started recording, Malik Beasley returns to the Minnesota Timberwolves for four years, $60 million. I think that we expected him to be retained considering how well he played once he got there and the fact that he was traded right at the deadline to Minnesota. What are your thoughts on that? I love it for the Timberwolves, honestly. Um, at, at 23 years old, he's got a lot of upside for the future, and he just fits... He fits what a lot of teams want. He's a great shot maker off of the dribble. He's a great shooter. Um, In only 14 games last season, 20 points per game, 42% from deep. Uh, He's a valuable commodity in the NBA because of his ability to make difficult shots and uh, just to put the ball in the bucket. So I think for a young Timberwolves team who, I don't, they're not going to struggle to put up points, but it's going to be hard to account for a lot of these guys here in Minnesota. You got to guard D'Lo. You got to guard Cat. You got to make sure that you're out on the wings on Ernan Gomez. You got to you got to guard Anthony Edwards. You got to take on Leandro Balmoro. This is going to be a really tough team to defend, man. I mean, I don't know where they're going to be defensively um, because they have Russell and Cat in their starting lineup, but uh, offensively, they are going to put up points on everybody. Yeah, I think we might be talking about one of the best offenses in basketball right now. And Beasley, we know what he can do with the ball in his hands. We know what he can do as a pure shooter. I think this is a win. It's a lot, but it's honestly not unreasonable in my opinion as far as the amount that he got for your $60 million. And I like it. I think long-term, as I said, maybe you found your two through four starters in the draft in Edwards, Bomaro, and McDaniels. But, you know, Beasley projects to me really well as potentially a scoring punch dynamic sixth man which I think could be his role with this team long term let's talk about some other things that happened De'Aaron Fox and Jason Tatum both signed max extensions for five years do you have any thoughts on those I think that they were both pretty foreseeable but any thoughts well I mean yeah they're really smart signings for both franchises we know they're building around them and uh, it's just smart to lock them up even more so for Tatum just because he's got potential to be one of the you know top five players in basketball next season Yeah, I really don't think there's much else to say there. The Miami Heat, 
made a couple of re-signings. Myers Leonard, they brought back for two years, 20 million, and Goran Dragic for two years, 37. Let's start with the Leonard. What are your thoughts on that? Because this was a guy who wasn't playing meaningful minutes for them, and you're paying him 10 million a year. I mean, I really don't understand this. No, I mean, I think Myers Leonard is a decently valuable commodity. Uh, the Heat defense dropped off significantly in the regular season when he missed time. And just because he's that threat of spacing the floor, I know he only put up, you know, two and a half threes per game last season. I just think he, as a threat on the floor, just because you have to account for him, I don't think it's that bad a signing. And in the modern NBA, $10 million per season really is. It's not chump change, but it kind of is compared to these other big contracts. I kind of like bringing back Myers Leonard. To me, it's just this is a guy who was a healthy scratch from every playoff game but three in your highly successful run to the finals. So it just seems like a bit of an overpay to me, and I don't totally understand it. And it inhibits what they can do because with Olenek opting in with the Iggy contract on the books, they're paying a lot of money to so-so guys. They're paying $40 million basically to those three, which I really do not love. Have they brought back Jay Crowder yet? No. Then man, I I didn't know that, man, with them bringing back Olenek, actually, I'm going to flip that. I don't know how you pay both of those guys. You can't. I think that they have Crowder's bird, right, so they should be able to make it work. But, I mean, you're inhibiting what you can do. They took a Gallo deal off the books, and obviously it ended up that that didn't happen, and maybe that was never really in the cards. But just a little bit less flexible to me when you're paying Myers Leonard two years, $20 million. The Dragic deal, though, I do really like. This guy was far and away one of your three best players in this finals run. He was huge as a shot maker. You want him to close out in Miami. And for two years, you are not limiting any of the extensions for the young guys like Bam, like Hero. So I, I like it all around. Any other thoughts? I mean, yeah, just with Drogic, uh, and what you saw the value that he provided in the playoffs and how bad this offense ran without him. He was the most important asset they needed to bring back this offseason. So we have some smaller but not insignificant deals that also went down today. The Utah Jazz brought in Derek Favors on a three-year, $27 million deal. What was your reaction to this? Garson, I'm going to be honest. I don't have one. I want to hear what you have to say. I don't understand the signing. Favors is Favors played here before. I don't really get bringing him back and also drafting Adoka Azubuke. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they're clearly adding depth as far as bigs go, and maybe they weren't content with Tony Bradley. Honestly, I don't think that that was their biggest issue off the bench. I would have pointed to a guy like Moutier playing significant minutes, basically, because he had to, because they're just so shallow there. I think that if you're talking about the per-year value, this is not a bad signing. We've all seen the stats about the on-off splits for Favors and the Pelicans and how much better they were with him on the floor, and I do think that he just had an impressive season. He's a bit archaic. You certainly do not want to play him alongside Rudy Gobert. So my question is then, as a non-floor spacing big man, what is he giving you besides maybe 16 good defensive minutes off the bench and he can you know, establish himself interiorly as an offensive player a bit as well? I don't see much more than that, so I don't love it. I don't really get it. The Jazz, to me, just seem to be continuing to commit more and more to a core that is not going to take them past the second round of the playoffs. But you know what? That's a good place to be. I guess you're a very good basketball team, and it's not like they had a bunch of cap flexibility that they could do something else with. Although I am really interested for the Jazz in the 2021 free agency because Mike Conley comes off the books, Rudy Gobert comes off the books, and it feels to me like a moment where they can say, okay, are we happy with our current core, or do we want to go for something else, take a chance? Another guy in the Northwest Division, Rodney Hood returns to the Portland Trailblazers on a two-year, $21 million deal. I'll be honest, 
I expected him to opt into his $6 million player option just because he was coming off of a season-ending injury. Not the case. What do you think about this for Portland? I mean, it's a huge get. We know how much of an elite three-point shooter he is alongside McCollum and Lillard. He's going to play that role perfectly. It's a good signing for Portland. Uh, I like them, I like them uh, bringing him back just because you need more three-point shooting and especially uh, with Zach Collins uh, going down with his injury, you lose a floor spacer for a, for a bit. So uh, bringing him back, I think, was a necessity. I think it's a great deal. Rodney Hood was awesome in their playoff run two years ago, and I think that we know what his value is. I don't think that two years, $21 million is at all unreasonable for him, and this Portland team is definitely putting together a core that I like because Rocco is an upgrade, obviously, getting Hood back healthy. If this team is just healthier for an entire season, maybe they're a lot better. It's a better roster than what made the Western Conference Finals two years ago. I don't really think that's debatable. We'll see what they do with Mello. Speaking of Mello, a star of the 2000s, Dwight Howard, signed on a one-year deal to the Philadelphia Sixers at the time of this recording. I don't believe the details have been disclosed. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I don't really get it for Dwight as an older player. I figured he'd be ring chasing. And I mean, I guess there's an opportunity here with this uh, in Philadelphia for that uh, because they're going to make the playoffs. He's a valuable piece to have. He's still a really good defender and a really good rebounder. Um, again, though, as you've mentioned with a guy like Derek Favors, his game is just a little archaic. He's not going to space the floor. I don't think you can run... I don't think you can run a lineup with Dwight Howard and Ben Simmons on the floor, and if you do, you're compromising a lot of offensive uh, potential. So I like it as a bench big man. He'll be a solid defender and rebounder, but uh, offensively, he just doesn't bring you anything else. I love it just because it's 15 good bench minutes that you needed. You needed depth here, in my opinion, and you're right. He's not going to be playing with the starters. Obviously can't play him alongside Embiid. I think that even with Simmons, you know, the threat of a pick and roll there is pretty much non-existent because you know that they're both coming downhill and maybe they can make a little something work there just because it's two dynamic athletes. But I think that if you're talking about him scrapping, fighting, being a spark plug guy for this team, what he brings defensively, I think it's got to be a win. We had a signing of a guy who is one of your personal least favorites, Logan, Wesley Matthews, one year, $3.6 million for the LA Lakers who continue to be active and of course just lost Dwight Howard though. What do you think that means for them? I mean, it's it's a really good pickup. This it's a pretty simple formula to follow. If you have LeBron James on your roster, you get him shooters. So, uh, with how bad some of these guys on the roster were in the playoffs last season from deep, uh, we saw Kyle Kuzma, Alex Caruso, Danny Green, especially, all struggle with their shot. And while Wesley Matthews isn't uh, the most prolific three point shooter, you know. That's really how he stayed in the league. It's how he stayed a relevant player. So any shooting, no matter the age, no matter the player, if you can bring in a guy who you know is a reliable catch and shooter, it's a good move for the Lakers. Yeah, and if you get Bradley back healthy, and obviously you lose Danny Green, but I think that you can approximate his value here with Wesley Matthews, you're still adding good three-point shooting wings. And let me just say, I love Palinka being aggressive, and I think that he's continuing to build a better team than what they trotted out there last year. Do you think that the loss of Dwight hurts them in a significant way? We've seen that they picked up Montrezl Harrell to compensate. They are likely to retain JaVale McGee still. I think that he opted out of his player option, and he will be a free agent, but I'm not positive about that. But does the loss of Dwight hurt them? Yeah, I think it hurts them a little bit, but if they bring back JaVale, I don't think it's that big of a blow. I mean, like you said, it's really 15 minutes a night that they're giving up. And with a guy like Trez, while I think it hurts you defensively, it's not that big of a loss for the Lakers. I was mistaken also. JaVale did pick up his player option, so he will be coming back, which kind of 
leads me to agree. I do think that Dwight was the better of the two this past year, but maybe if Anthony Davis is just willing to play center, which he may have to do this year, then, you know, it doesn't really matter all that much. You don't need two guys there. Really, the last news of today is the Detroit Pistons shenanigans, which have been pretty amusing to watch now, especially with them paying Jeremy Grant like they did. Plumlee on a three-year $25 million deal. Jaleel Okafor on a two-year deal. Josh Jackson on a deal. I don't believe the details have been disclosed for that yet. What are your thoughts on the Pistons as we wrap this up? So much to talk about from this past week plus, and we end with the Detroit Pistons just being weird. All of this... And the Detroit Pistons still have not re-signed Christian Wood. I mean, if you're going to bring back a young asset that can play alongside Sadiq Bey and Killian Hayes, Christian Wood fits that pretty well, at least offensively. Uh, it just makes me happy to know that a few things stay constant. The uh, The Detroit Pistons, as they did with Ben Gordon and Rodney Stuckey, they'll always give out dumb contracts when it comes free agency time. So uh, thank, you for, uh, thank you for providing me a little uh, entertainment here for the end of the show, Detroit. Some fascinating choices, although I will say, I think that the Plumlee loss hurts for the Nuggets, and Josh Jackson might as well take a flyer on him. We know that he has not been consistently productive, but does he have tools? He played a little bit better in Memphis when he was out there this season, so if that shot comes around, then I do think you're talking about a guy who is a legitimate NBA player. Might as well bring him in, unless you are talking about an overpay there, which I really don't think is in the cards because of how he has performed we do still have some big dogs out there after night one. Night one is not over, but it's getting late over there on the East Coast. Gordon Hayward opted out of his $34 million player option, which was insane. Completely unprecedented in my eyes. Fred Van Vliet is still out there. Christian Wood, as you mentioned, is still out there. So what do you see coming as free agency continues to unfold? Any specific big moves that you have in mind for any of these guys? Uh I wanted to see Van Fleet to the Hawks. I think it was an interesting move that you laid out. I don't know if that's still possible with Gallinari, but if they've got the cap space, I think that would make them a legitimate uh, playoff contender. They do, actually. They have still, like, almost $30 million in cap because they had more than anyone in the league to start with. Well, and that's definitely what I want to see happen. I think your offense would be elite if you bring in Van Fleet. Uh, as for the other guys, I just want to say, Danny Ainge, you're the man. I don't know how you tell a man how you convince someone to turn down $30 million, but uh, with his wizardry, congratulations, Danny. You're, <laughs> you, you earn a gold star. <laughs> and all indications seem to be that Gordon Hayward will be going to the Indiana Pacers, which I think is interesting, potentially in a sign-and-trade. We'll see if the Celtics can get any legitimate value back there. I don't know if I love the basketball fit, but... You know what? Mayhem is still unfolding here. So we, re we reacted live to some stuff. We talked about some big trades that happened days ago. We talked about the draft. We really covered our bases here. We will be taking next week off for the most part. We won't be doing a sports history pod or an NFL pod, but considering that so much is still going on in the NBA, we will be talking about free agency once that picture is really finalized and maybe give some more in-depth thoughts on some of the signings that we touched on tonight. That's going to do it for us here today. I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sound.